This episode of The Hash is sponsored by Bitstamp. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Monday's top story. All right. BlockFi, which was last valued at $4.8 billion, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection as the FTX fallout continues. So in the filing, the crypto firm said it has more than 100,000 creditors with liabilities and assets ranging from $1 to $10 billion. The company also listed an outstanding $275 million loan to FTX US. You'll remember that BlockFi faced liquidity issues when 3AC imploded and it looks like they could not survive another big hit. Will, I'm going to toss this one off to you. Another crypto firm filing for Chapter 11. Yeah, I feel like we need some like sort of emoji reactions on the show for all the explosions we've been seeing week after week. You know, FTX is just contagion season. We're going to see more of this. There's a lot of firms that have been tied to FTX. They got loans from FTX. They had accounts on FTX. Uh, We're even seeing some reports of some other stuff going on with the hacking, right? So there's going to be more news about this. BlockFi was definitely a large shoe to drop that some people were expecting because of the credit line that was opened up this summer from FTX to BlockFi. If you remember, just go back in our time machine a little bit. Remember that BlockFi needed some funds after what happened with Terra Luna, 3AC. They're looking for someone to help shore up their credit. And even going back further than that, they were fined by the SEC for their involvement in offering an interest-bearing account. SEC did not like that, fined him $100 million. If we look inside this Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing so far, we even see that BlockFi is still trying to pay that off. I think they owe about $22 million to the SEC still. So this is a huge thing to drop. I think I saw from LinkedIn this morning that they have about 500 employees over at BlockFi. It's certainly dropped since the summer. I think they did a little bit of a layoff this summer as well. But now they're going to do even deeper layoffs going to Chapter 11. Probably just going to keep anyone that is needed to keep the fund or the firm rather structured as they start liquidating assets and giving people money back based on what they need. Zach, throw it up to you. Get more details. Yeah, BlockFi was once the darling of the crypto lending world. They were seen as sort of the upstanding centralized crypto lender. And here they are fully wrecked over fallout from the FTX implosion. You will recall that also BlockFi received that emergency cash infusion in the form of FTT tokens. Uh, There was a significant amount of money that was loaned out to BlockFi when they were in dire straits. And the fact that that was an FTT, not great given what happened with FTT and FTX's demise. So yeah, sad day for BlockFi. I think a lot of people saw this as coming. Once operations were, were kind of halted there, the writing turns out to have been on the wall. And this is sort of that official closure to what many were expecting as another crypto lender sinks. Sam, tossing it to you. Yeah, I think you've both made good points about how this has been kind of not only an indictment of BlockFi as a single platform, but also the crypto lending market in general. One of the things that I don't think we've mentioned yet today is the fact that there are still, you know, lending platforms out there. So um, there was the Genesis that filed um, also, well, hasn't had a file, but is, you know, nearing some sort of like a weird situation that we've talked about in the past. But there's also Nexo, which is this platform that still boasts eight to 10% yields, depending on where you look. Part of those yields are paid out in, you know, Nexo's own token. Maybe it's totally above board. I have no reason to think that it's not, but this has absolutely invited scrutiny to those other platforms. 
just by virtue of being another player in the space to file for bankruptcy. So curious to see what happens there. Sorry, go ahead, Zach. Yeah, it's something to consider. I think it's going to change the calculus of a lot of retail investors out there, right? You know, people who had been investing in, in Bitcoin for a long time, they said, hey, I have this Bitcoin is just sitting there. I would love to get some yield on it. And so they turned to all this bevy of crypto lending firms that sprung up to get that additional 7 8% on a top of whatever value was appreciating in those assets over time. So I think that calculus, now that we've seen this unfold so rapidly, that calculus is going to change for a lot of people. A lot of people are probably going to say, okay, maybe I don't need the 6 7 8% yield on these assets. Maybe I am safer to keep them uh, self-custodially in my own keeping as opposed to entrusting them with a, a centralized party in this instance that can go south and can go south quickly. So it's going to be interesting to see what the centralized crypto lending industry comes back, if at all, I think, in the wake of this, or whether or not a lot of these funds you know, migrate to DeFi, if that's something that, that stems from this in a meaningful way. That could be a really interesting moment in the history of crypto. And this could indeed be sort of that inflection point toward a more on-chain crypto economy rather than through these centralized trusted intermediaries that so far have sprung up in these first couple chapters of the crypto story. But yeah, Will, curious for your thoughts. Yeah, I'll take a little whack at the DeFi part of this and then throw it over to Jen. I'm glad you brought up the DeFi angle because I think it's important to notice that these centralized players were often using DeFi in order to give these high interest rate accounts, right? So just mentioned the 8 to 10% on Nexo, Sam. How are they getting that? Well, a lot of times it's just rehypification of assets onto various farms. You're taking those farms, those tokens that you get on those farms and then liquidating it into dollars and then shoving it back into token holders' hands. And for sometimes that works and other times it doesn't work, right? We saw that fail with a lot of stuff what happened with BlockFi and 3AC and Celsius, of course, being the biggest one there. They were, you know, operating on a lot of different farms. Back in May, people were watching MakerDAO. They're watching Aave. They're watching all these DeFi platforms to see, can Celsius pay back their loans or are they going to be stomped out in public fashion on chain? So I think, Zach, you bring up a good point that like, hopefully DeFi can be an answer to this, that there's more transparency when it comes to lending out. I do think it's important to note, however, that like the difference between these two things is the centralized and decentralized Decentralized alternatives are also not doing as great. I mean, there might not be any bad debt, might not be like anything with Chapter 11 bankruptcy, but oftentimes these tokens, they've gone down you know, just as much, uh, 95% plus in some cases, where the native token for these things just don't hold up well during a bear market. And so a lot of times, account holders on these things are not doing great either, unless they're able to cash out into USD, Bitcoin, or ETH. Those things seem to be like the only tokens that are really holding up during a bear market. So to me, when I look at the lending platform scene, I just see not a great place to put any of my money at all. And I, I think that's something that's going to be sort of the legacy out of this bear market. Hopefully the on-chain transparency becomes more of a norm going forward. But I do think a lot of people are going to be scared away from any sort of lending platform for the next few years. Jen, over to you. Yeah, two things that popped into my head as everyone was talking. I totally agree with what everyone has said. I think when it comes to centralized exchanges. We need to pump the brakes a little bit when it comes to solving some of these transparency issues and working with regulators, right? And then when it comes to DeFi, it's like, okay, uh, maybe I'm not going to operate over the uh, in CeFi because of what's happening now. But now if I look at DeFi, there are a lot of hacks and exploits that maybe are really hard for the mainstream user to understand how to do the proper due diligence to make sure that they're not going to lose a bunch of money on a hack or an exploit. And so I'm just going to stick to this narrative that I've adopted in the last month or so that maybe this mainstream adoption, this push to bring the next billion users 
into the Web3 space, we should slow down a little bit and look at solving these issues that are presented to us every single day. Zach, I'm going to give it to you for last thoughts. Yeah, great point. Just a quick one before I toss to Sam. I mean, it's just a different set of risks, right? A different set of trade-offs. You have counterparty risk in one aspect of the conversation and you have smart contract risk in another. And both those risks can be equally scarring, scary, depressing uh, when they materialize. And we've seen, maybe I think we've seen to date more of the smart contract uh, vulnerability risk uh, rear its ugly head. But now we're absolutely seeing the uh, the counterparty risk rear its very ugly head with the, the unwinding of all these lending platforms. So I think it's something that investors in the space just really need to reckon with. Like these are very real risks and these trade-offs exist and they could impact your bottom line at the end of the day. Sam, last thoughts here. Yeah, one, one last interesting angle to this. One of the unsurprising things, but still interesting things to see in, in the bankruptcy filing was, of course, listed among the top creditors, FTX. We spoke about that earlier, but FTX allowed this thing to perhaps spiral into something bigger than it would have spiraled into had it not fallen earlier. Uh, so this is like a weird angle that maybe we can get at later on if we you know, talk about Binance and what they're planning on doing. But this whole thing we're seeing where industry players are coming in and bailing out some of these businesses that at a fundamental level we've seen are, if not fraudulent in this specific case, are at least on shaky grounds. I think we should view some of these attempts to quote unquote, save the ecosystem through a different lens. Is allowing these perpetual motion machines to keep on moving on actually a positive thing when it's eventually going to have to fall apart anyway. I know there's a lot more here, by the way, in terms of why FTX bailed out BlockFi, it might've been for its own motives. Times are tough, particularly for crypto, but Bitstamp's different. Bitstamp is the longest running crypto exchange and among the most regulated in the world, which includes a bit license in New York and a payment institution license in Europe. And when it comes to your funds, with Bitstamp, your crypto belongs to you. All your fiat and crypto are kept 100% separated. It's why Crypto Compare ranked Bitstamp the number one crypto exchange, awarding them the highest possible AA rating. Learn more at bitstamp.net. Tuesday's top story. We are going to start the show off with a bank report. It's been so long since I've had the chance to troll Will with one of these. So here we go. JP Morgan analysts say that centralized crypto exchanges will remain dominant despite FTX's collapse, which contradicts some crypto native figureheads who predict a shift towards DeFi platforms in the wake of FTX's implosion. The analysts cited an absence of a limit order stop loss feature on DEXs, dependency on price oracles that source data from centralized exchanges, hacks and exploits as some of the reasoning. Zach, I'm going to kick it off to you for your thoughts on this bank report. Before Will Foxley dunks on this poor bank analyst <laughs> and calls him a midwit, I will stand up for this report and I believe that this is right. Humans have a long history of entrusting other people to do complicated things for them. And sometimes being your own bank sucks. And sometimes yield farming out on the wilds of DeFi also sucks. And that's why we saw firms like Celsius and others leverage some of these DeFi protocols to give lazy users some of that sweet, sweet yield. 
And I think directionally, if that's the argument that's being made here, directionally that point will stand. And I think despite all of the chest thumping that this is DeFi's moment, I think probably those are pretty stiff, like stiff human headwinds to overcome, right? That, that desire for, uh, for laziness, for entrusting others to do things uh, that you know can be tricky, especially in crypto with self-custodying assets. That stuff can be tricky for a lot of folks. And sometimes we don't want to be our own bank. We just want someone to be our bank for us. So I'm going to toss it to Will because he's probably going to just slam this poor fool. But I just wanted to pipe up in anticipation of Will's thing that he's going to say right now. Wow, I'm disappointed in you too because I actually did some research beforehand to make sure that if a dunk was appropriate or not, I would or would not make it. And I am not going to dunk on this man because it actually was the right call. The analysis here was solid. Zach, I agree with everything you said. Everything in this report is quite solid. I don't want to go DeFi yield farming all the time. Sometimes I just want to get that sweet, sweet yield on a centralized exchange. And that's where I'm going to go. And I looked up this guy. He's a little older. He knows what he's doing. He's been around the block a few times. And he made a solid argument in this piece. So I'm going to leave it there. All the people I've dunked on in the past are those fools who have just been like finding out what yield farming is three days before. They just figured out what chain link oracles are. Those are the people who deserve some scrutiny, deserve to be dunked on. This guy, I forgot your name, it was kind of long. You know, keep going with it. Keep going with that. I appreciate it. Zach, back over to you. I got to give it to you. I got to get Jen on the board here. Jen, come on. What do you think? I was going to, I was first going to say to Will, how do you know it was a man? Because the article just said analyst, but you did your research. So there you go, Will. Thank you for doing your research before coming on the show. I agree with both of you and this analyst. I think for the mainstream to adopt DeFi, it really takes a retraining of the brain. We've been trusting other people with our money since, as, for as long as we can remember, since we were born, you know, we put our monies in the banks. That's just what happens. And I don't think that that's going to change overnight. I think some of the reasons that were mentioned in here you know, the the hacks and the exploits and the risks that come with holding your own money, people aren't ready for. Banks give us insurance. Credit cards give us insurance. We know that we have that backstop. If, If we do something wrong, if we lose our card or someone steals it, or there is some kind of data breach that we know or we trust that the banks have our back. And so I agree with this report. I don't think that we are just going to turn and everyone's going to start adopting DeFi. I think there are a lot of problems to be solved. But I do think that what's happened in the industry is one step in the right direction for crypto literacy. I think the fact that we're talking about DeFi, I think the fact that um, DeFi is something that's being mentioned in the news and mainstream headlines, it may push the average user to learn a little bit more about what's going on in the DeFi space. And and maybe they'll decide to start experimenting later on. Zach, what do you got? All right. All these bearish DeFi takes, I got to pipe up. I'm still bullish long-term <laughs> DeFi. I think DeFi is in the very nascent early stages. A lot of the UX is janky as hell. And one day, I think there's going to be more sophisticated ways for people to use these protocols that are really genuinely powerful. The fact that you can do these things on the internet without the need for someone to trust that they're doing it on your behalf uh, is a good lesson to to take to heart in the wake of some of the recent collapses that we've seen. So I will pipe up for DeFi. I think bullish. I'm bullish on DeFi long term. The fact that you can do these bank like things on the internet with smart contracts is super duper cool. And yes, it's going to be a long road to get there, but I think one day the crypto economy will ultimately get there. 
Will. Okay, I will point out a few nitpicks in this article. You point out some things oh, that are not know. good for... D- I know, I know. We kind of have to, though. You have to correct the record. That's what we're all here for. He pointed out a few things that DeFi can't do, when in fact it can do. So there's a few things on here, most notably, he calls stop losses. Just make You can't do that on DeFi. He says like, that hurts your trading experience, and that would be true. But there are some DeFi protocols that actually have figured this out. And I think that's where the next wave of a lot of this DeFi stuff going is off-chain computation and on-chain settlement. And that's what's going to open up broader horizons for any sort of DeFi exchange to really take off. So DYDX is probably the most well-known exchange for some sort of derivatives contract or more complex DeFi experience. Yes, on Uniswap, you're not able to add in like all these different market orders, stop orders, stop losses, all those things. That doesn't exist yet. Because the protocols aren't really built for that. That protocol is built as like plumbing for general network. But there are other DeFi applications that you can do this with. So I got to correct the record a little bit. Otherwise, it's a good note. I appreciated this banking analyst for once nailing it. Zach, to you. Amazing. Wow. We can grow and change. Congratulations, Will. I'm so glad you're here. Wednesday's top story. Yeah, Kraken announced layoffs this morning from Jesse Powell, the co-founder and CEO, who's actually stepping down uh, later this year or early next year. But they're uh, you know, slashing the workforce. About 1,000 employees are affected by this. They're going to give a pretty generous severance package, I think 16 weeks of pay, you know, helping them find a new jobs, different locations to be at. The reason for this, well, they hired too fast and aggressively, saying that they moved up in terms of like exchange volume and all those things that happened during a bull market, but it wasn't quite self-sustaining. So they're going back to the previous headcount they had 12 months ago. This follows up, of course, on a lot of different layoffs that we've seen across the tech space, not just in crypto. Meta laid off about 10,000 employees a little bit ago. Amazon has slashed its workforce. Uh, and of course, there's a bunch of others. Twitter being a very notable example with well over 75% of its workforce slashed when Elon Musk came into town. Zach, I want to throw this one over to you. I think for the crypto community, this is sort of becoming a dull pain at this point. There's been so many layoffs. But again, 1,000 employees, that's a decent amount of people at Kraken. That is a lot of people, a lot of families. So yeah, first of all, thoughts to them. Uh, yeah, this is hunkering down for crypto winter plus crypto winter plus broader sort of macroeconomic conditions that make it pretty unfavorable to be investing in some of these markets right now, right? Gone are the heady days of 2021 when money was cheap and people were looking for risk on assets to park their funds in. That is gone. And as a result, a lot of these firms are having to cut back significantly. You know, we had incoming CEO Dave Ripley on the show recently. So this is a pretty remarkable about face from some previous comments that Kraken had made about holding steady through uh, thick and thin, despite the current market conditions, they were going to be able to continue their plans to grow as such. But obviously, that's taken a turn, probably compounded by this last month of just crazy news in the crypto markets that may have suppressed exchange demand even further as we saw people rush towards self-custody. Jen, curious for your thoughts. Yeah, I guess this is just bear market things, right? I think Will alluded to it in his intro during a bull cycle. There's a lot more customers entering the space and those customers demand products that work. Things need to work better. They need to work faster. They need to break less. And that means that you need to staff up. I know if Wendy were here, she would be saying she wished that Kraken prepared for the bear market. But I think that there's only so much preparation you can do. You need to be able to uh, operate and provide to customer demand. And now during the bear market, a lot of those new customers aren't here anymore. They're waiting out the storm. They're not even sure that they want to 
operate in crypto. They're reading all of these headlines. They're watching what's going on with FTX. And, you know, they're not using exchanges like Kraken. I, and so I think that we could have expected this. I love that the severance package is 16 weeks. I know in some of the previous layoff stories, we've spoken about severance packages were non-existent or not as great as this. And so I hope that these people can find positions. I said this, I think, on the, during the first layoff story we spoke about. There's still money in this space. There is still funding going to startups and people who are working on developing the projects that are going to be the stars of our next bull cycle. So I always say, if you have an idea and you, you've always wanted to work on it and you find yourself being laid off, there are a lot of grant programs out there and funds that are looking to invest in novel ideas. So do some research and check those out, Zach. Just wanted to note sort of the bull bear roller coaster, right? If you look at the blog post, this reduction takes Kraken back to its headcount from 12 months ago, right? So as things were ramping up in the markets and thousands of more customers were looking to get into crypto, all these exchanges and a lot of these crypto firms that are retail facing really faced that challenge. How do we grow quickly enough for this bull market demand while not putting us in a real bad spot when the bear market comes? Because if we keep seeing this in crypto, again, this roller coaster of highs, and lows. We go up, 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 and we draw down 90%. We go up, 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 and we draw down 90%. And you're kind of seeing that chart play out in headcount too, right? These firms that face retail crypto users who are interested when price go up, they have to grow their headcount ranks, right? So the headcount also go up. And then this is what we see in times when things are a bit fallow. These significant cuts, again, 1,100 people, that's a lot of people to, to let go. But it speaks to the growth that they also endured over the past 12 months that they added that amount of people in the good times. And now they're pairing back to where they were previously. It's going to be interesting to see who they prioritize, who they keep on, and what those folks are building toward for that presumed next up cycle. Will, what are your thoughts? Last, last thing on this one. Yeah, the roller coaster idea is kind of cliche, but I think it's very fair, right? When you're going up, things are just wild and you have to meet demand. And if you don't meet customers' demand, they get pretty angry at you. And on the way down, you know, you have to let people off because there's not demand anymore. And then you also kind of get hit by public markets are like, oh, you have to lay people off. That's not a great look either. So and it's tough to be in crypto markets. It's tough to be in that very cyclical market. The last thing I want to bring to the table is the fact that a lot of these companies are having to do unpopular things because of the bear market. Uh, yesterday, we talked about a Phantom Wallet. Phantom Wallet adding Ethereum to its uh, wallet ecosystem. It's a pretty unpopular move in terms of like uh, its community. Solana, a lot of people wanted to stay on Solana, build there. They're opening up to different chains. I think there's a, some correlation here, right? Like you have to make unpopular moves going to a bear market. You have to pivot. You have to stay alive. You have to stay alive until the next cycle. And that means pissing off your community. That means laying off people. That means making unpopular decisions to help your bottom line out. And I think we're going to see a few more of these things. And for everyone who's just here for their first cycle and has like, you know, their stakes in the ground and what they like in crypto and what they don't like. I think they're going to see a little bit more of this. Uh, they're going to call for more flexibility, hopefully. Zach, over to you. You know, if you look again at, uh, you mentioned public markets, Will, and I think Kraken had long been rumored to be going public. And I think we can say with some degree of certainty that that listing is not happening anytime soon. And hopefully it'll be time to the next upswing in the markets. We've all seen what Coin, Coinbase's stock has done since debuting to much fanfare back in April, 2021. Yeah, I know we always say that businesses need to prepare for this roller coaster and this the bull and bear cycles. But I think to some extent, if you work in the crypto industry and you're new to working in the crypto industry, 
You should also prepare for, for the bull and bear cycles. You should prepare for the roller coaster and know that during the next bear cycle, we are going to see layoffs because we've seen that time and time again and just make sure that you are ready for it so that you are not surprised when it happens. Thursday's top story. That's right, Jen. I was one of many glued to my screen watching this thing unfold. Truly a remarkable moment, no matter how you feel about the whole situation. Of course, we're talking about Sam Bankman-Fried, former FTX CEO, in conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times Dealbook Conference. Truly, truly a crazy interview, an hour and 12 minutes long of lots of strange moments, including this one. We'll see this clip now. Right now, I mean, look, I, I've had a bad month. Um, this has not been a fun month for me, but that's not what matters here. Like, what matters here is the millions of customers. What matters here is all the stakeholders in FTX uh, who, who got hurt and, and trying to do everything I can to help them out. And, you know, as long as that's the case, like, I don't think that... I don't think that, you know, what happens with me is the important part of that. And I don't think that's what it makes sense for me to be focusing on. Very bizarre laugh track thing aside, lots was shared in this conversation. Maybe not necessarily what's at the heart of the matter, but certainly a lot of hemming, hawing and potential spin as to how Sam Bankman-Fried is trying to position himself in the wake of FTX's catastrophic collapse. I'm going to toss this straight to David. I know you were watching this as well, David. What are your thoughts about the SBF interview? Uh, there's many things to discuss uh, this morning. Yeah, it's it's very strange um, what he might be thinking. Um, I think that uh, there is this broader trend of these crypto guys who can't seem to shut their mouths after they commit large frauds and crimes. Um, and uh, so th I think the question right now is, is Sam Bankman-Fried being very smart or very stupid or both? If you're a lawyer and he said his, uh, his lawyers have asked him not to say anything, at the same time, um, while he is apologizing in sort of vague terms, he is not really uh, getting to the heart of the matter, which is uh, he, he seems to genuinely believe that it's not a big deal, that there was no separation between Alameda uh, and FTX and their operations and the flows of funds. He, he really doesn't seem to get it. I, I, I think I might be jumping the gun a little. Well, let's go to Jen and then I have a tweet about it that we can share in a bit. Yeah, David, you know, I think that Sam was so used to being the media darling, right? Having everyone love him. And I wonder if, if that, that like learned energy and what he got out of being this the savior, like everyone was calling him in the media just months ago, has gotten to his head and he is really trying to grasp at straws to just regain any kind of the reputation that he had back. Unfortunately, the facts are against him. And last night when I was watching this interview, every single time he said, you know, what's important here is the customers. I want to do my best to ensure that customers can be made whole or can be made some semblance of whole. It just felt like a lie because if what he really cared about was the customers, I don't think we would have been in this situation. And I know there are a lot of opinions on how the interview went. I think Andrew Sorkin did a good job. I think he asked all of the questions that, you know, I had at the top, top of my head. I think he did a good job at pressing 
Sam in the time that he had, but Sam just really kind of gave us the runaround. I don't feel like we got any more information. I, I don't feel like I believe him that what's important for him at the end of the days is the customer because when Sorkin read that email from the customer who wrote to the New York Times and said, you know, I lost my life savings. He pointed to the terms and conditions of FTX saying that customer funds will not be used in the way that they were used. I didn't feel a lot of empathy from Sam and I ended up going to bed just feeling like, Ugh, what just happened? I wish I didn't watch this before I went to bed because I'm not going to sleep well. But David, I'll kick it back up to you for that tweet. Yeah, I, I not only did I not feel any empathy, I didn't even feel any comprehension from Sam. Like he d genuinely does not seem to like understand what he did wrong. And I think, you know, this is this resonates with another crypto scam that we've dealt with fairly recently, uh, which was the UST and Terra scam, where Do Kwan um, is at least doing a really good job and continues to of acting like a guy who's just dumb. And that seems to be what is being revealed about Sam Bankman-Fried here to some extent. He's just not as smart as everybody seemed to think he was. And so he just waves his hands and that's as good as he can do on some level. Of course, at the same time, and this is the question, maybe that's a pose or maybe, you know, there's part of his brain that really believes that. And the other part is saying, okay, act like this now. That'll do a good job of, of convincing people. Zach. I mean, I'm in the camp that this is definitely not 4D chess, right? I think this is just some sort of weird personal truth that is manifesting itself in this weird, jittery way that Sam Bankman-Fried has had for a long time. I think Andrew Ross Sorkin deserves a lot of credit here. There's a lot of sort of cheap conspiracy theorizing out there that good. the New York Times is sort of putting SBF on some pedestal for, for hero worship. When indeed what we saw was a cross-examination, right? There was a lot of room for... Sam Bagman free to say things that will potentially be incriminating further down the line, including some key dates in terms of when he knew what was going on. Those are probably going to be counterposed to some public statements that were made after those dates, in which in the interview he said, okay, that's when I knew that things were going bad. So, you know, I think sort of like the NYT boogeyman in the crypto community here is really misplaced. And this ended up being just a really fascinating conversation that I thought was pretty capably handled by Andrew Ross Sorkin in this instance. We should also mention that, you know, th this is a media tour at this point. SPF is on a media tour with Good Morning America. He taped an interview prior to the deal book appearance with George Stephanopoulos that aired this morning, in which many of the same sentiments were expressed, including sort of this, uh, this very pregnant pause when asked repeatedly about the question, did you know that there was the commingling of customer assets over on the Alameda trading side of the house? So it is strange to see this sort of publicity campaign in which SBF is trying to uh, reframe things in a way that he thinks is favorable to him. While also, I think the lawyers in the room are saying, wow, that's a lot of damning information that's coming out in a public setting that may not be good down the line. But Will, got to get your thoughts on this one. Just a, just a crazy moment all around. Yeah, 30 seconds before we go to the next story, which might be similar. Talking about Mike Novogratz's appearance this morning on TV, and I think he characterized this whole thing very well when he just called Sam delusional. Like that whole interview with the New York Times yesterday was bizarre. The Good Morning Amer America appearance this morning was also pretty bizarre. If you watch that, uh, like you said, Zach, he was asked point blank if he knew about commingled funds and he paused for like 30 seconds and then gave an answer and then even tried to contextualize it. So it's a pretty obvious gambit that he's lying or trying to be deceitful in some way. 
And I, I think just Mike Novogratz's point really is important here. He's delusional at this point. I think what we're seeing is someone's life completely implode in front of him. Maybe he didn't think this was going to happen. It certainly has. And it's been a spectacle. And now he's going on a media tour saying yes to everything, tweeting odd stuff, talking to YouTubers at odd hours of the nights. It's a, a really bizarre situation. Zach, back up to you. Yeah, I mean, there's also just like some bizarro world scenario where this PR coup actually works. I'm not necessarily in that camp just yet. Uh, and I think maybe that was being sought for here is a win in the court of public opinion. If maybe down the line, the legal system won't be so kind. But SBF is trying his damnedest to uh, gin up some goodwill here in the rubble. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.